0: Thank you, Joe. Good morning. Good morning. Privileged to be here with you after I uh, asked Joe if this compared to Alaska. He used to live in Alaska, and he's informed me that it does not. But for me, it might as well be Alaska, and probably for you as well. So we're glad to see a little warmth maybe coming today. So take your Bibles, please, and turn to me to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue to walk through the this sermonic letter of Hebrews. And we've reached what we've been calling the Hall of Faith, or the you know, I love to say Cooper's Cooperstown of faith, uh, and so uh, this morning we've uh, we reached one of the most significant figures in all of Scripture, Abraham. We'll spend really the next three weeks on uh, Abraham, probably, and certainly is worth it. Uh, but as always, I want to I want to begin back in verse one just to get our context, because verse one really sets the stage for everything that comes, uh, the important context for everything that comes after that here in chapter eleven, because basically. He's giving this statement about faith and then illustrating it with these mini-biographies. And so, let us hear now the word of the Lord as inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith able offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And the same could be said for all these paragons of faith. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer And builder is God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Praise His holy name. Let's pray together. God, the psalmist reminds us that this is the one to whom you will look, who is humble, who is steadfast in spirit, And trembles at your word. So God, this morning I pray you'd make us humble, that you would work in us, that you would give us grace now to tremble at your word. For it is your word, Lord. We've not come here, I hope, because it's what we always do on Sunday. Or it's what our family does on Sunday, or our friends do on Sunday. But God, we've come here this morning to worship you, the holy, sovereign creator of the universe. And so, God, I pray that we, you, would, you would prepare our hearts accordingly as we come into your presence through your word. Father, change our hearts today. Make us like Jesus and give us grace now to worship you in spirit and in truth. you're looking for such to worship you, Lord. God, change our hearts. Do in us what you alone can do. If there be those here, God, who do not know you today. I pray they would hear the gospel and they would hear the effectual call of the Spirit and that you would draw them irresistibly, draw them effectually to yourself unto salvation and that today they begin to live a different life, a new life in Christ out of a new sense of the holiness of God and the smallness of themselves. That They would know God thems- accurately and they know themselves accurately. O oh Lord, now be worshipped in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week I... I think I began by saying something like Noah is probably one of the most famous men in the history of the church and the history of the world. I mean, we name our children Noah, right? We have a, a Noah here among us. We name our children Abraham, Abe. I have several friends named Abraham. And I would argue that if the New Testament writers are to be believed, and I think we interpret the Old Testament the way the New Testament writers interpret them, I think Abraham is maybe... One of the two or three most significant figures in all of Scripture. In order to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they fit together, you must understand God's dealings with Abraham. The Bible's a, a, a seamless robe. I know we, we have Old Covenant and we have New Covenant, but really it's all one story, isn't it? It's all saying one thing. It's talking about the God's redeeming love for sinners like us in Christ Jesus because it was through Abraham that God gave him the covenant of grace through which we are saved, through which we are here, by which we are here today. And so our salvation rests in part upon God's faithfulness to Abraham. Salvation's nothing new, right? The way the way we're regenerated and saved, that's as old as the old covenant. So it's nothing new. We call it the new covenant, but it's really, it began with Abraham, didn't it? It was pictured in as far back as as Genesis 3.15, where God promised that though the earth is under a curse, though the creation is under a curse, that there's going to come one. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And so the serpent crusher has come. And he's come through the seed of Abraham. In Romans 4.11, the apostle Paul gives Abraham the important designation, the father of all who believe. And so there's a very real sense in which we're looking at I'm looking at this morning the children of Abraham. You know, we sing that song in Vacation Bible School. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. And that's just a good way, a very, actually, a very theologically strong and robust way of putting the Bible together, right? God's promises have not fallen on hard times. They have not failed. They're alive and well this morning, and you are evidence of that. And it started with Abraham. And of course, those of us who are Christians, we're his spiritual children, and his faith reminds us of the model that we are bound to follow since he has an continuing significance. And this morning we'll look at merely part one of Abraham's story. And of all the many biographies here in, in chapter 11 of faith in Hebrews 11, the longest one involves that of Abraham, so we're going to take the next three weeks. I'll preach this week. Pastor Doug's going to preach next week, look at Sarah and, and all that's involved in the promise to Abraham and Sarah, whose womb was barren, and then we'll look, we willing, really in the following week, uh, at uh, Abraham's test, a test that no, none of us hope to ever have to go through, when he said, take the son of promise that I've given you who's come through all these unlikely circumstances and kill him greatest test of faith probably in the history of mankind. So we'll look at this really in three parts, part one today. And so we, Abraham's story, we see, we read uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 9, the call of Abraham, but it really runs through Genesis 12 all the way through 25, it takes up a a large chunk of Genesis. And so I'll commend that to your reading this week to kind of get your bearings for the story of Abraham. But understanding these illustrations here in chapter 11, we've always got to keep 11.1 1 in mind, what faith is. And I would argue not just what faith is theologically, but of more, important, more importance what it looks like in everyday life. Because remember, yes, we love theology and Christian, the Christian faith is not, not less than theology, but your theology has to land on the ground or really you've not understood the theology correctly, right? And so we see that. This is what I love about Hebrews 11 is theology applied. God's sovereignty applied. Election applied. You know, we talked about election in the last couple of weeks in Sunday school. That's a controversial doctrine. But really, we see it right here, don't we? We saw it in Noah, where God chose Noah, and eight people, and just killed the rest of them, right? And yet we don't stumble over that until we think about it and realize that God's always been a choosing God, a selecting God. And yet the call, the, the, the general call that Noah made was come, all right, come and escape from the flood of God's wrath. And We see the call here again today in, in Abraham. And so we always keep the 11.1, one, faith, the assurance of things, hope for the conviction, or I've argued the old King James may have this right, the evidence of things not seen. And I love that play on words, the evidence of things not seen. Evidence is something you see, Right? You guys probably watch the cop shows like I do. I love the you know, CSI and all those things. I love the forensic evidence. You know, this evidence. So we find evidence. We see it, right? But this is the evidence of things not seen. See, this is the Christian faith. In the heart of the Christian faith are these paradoxes, these things that turn reality on its head. Things are not always the way they appear. And if you understand that, when you come to Scripture, you'll understand Scripture a lot better and be in a position to submit to it. And that's because we like the wisdom to see it, the eyes to see, right? Nothing wrong with God, nothing wrong with his word. It isn't broken. That's because we don't we like the eyes to see until he gives us the eyes to see, as he did Abraham. Of course, we always want to go back to our purpose for these mini biographies. They're meant to deepen our confidence in God's promises so that we turn from, always, 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 we want to be turning from the fleeting pleasures of sin. And live out this radical kind of love that comes from having God as your only hope. Christ as your only hope. Faith that is seen is described in Colossians 1, 4 and 5. I've referred to several times where Paul writes, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, this is what I want for Christ's fellowship. Okay, I want them to hear of your faith in Christ Jesus. He says here, And the love you have for all the saints. Why? Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And it's not a hope so hope. It's a certain and settled hope certain and settled reality, isn't it? It is an inheritance that's just as real as we are sitting here this morning, maybe even more real. We're going to see. And of course, as I've said in this chapter, good Christian biography, and I love biography, and, and many of you do too, but good Christian biography doesn't just tell you about the person, but it teaches us lessons that strengthen us to live the life of faith in everyday life. And this is certainly uh, one of the best examples in all the Bible, in my opinion. And so this morning, we saw several marks of the of genuine faith, I think four last week. So two more marks emerge from this text, and then we're going to have uh, in the second one, there's several others that I see as a subset of, of of the second one. We'll get to that. I'll explain that in a moment. That may sound confusing, but here's the first one. Genuine faith. We're seeing Everything through the lens of what is genuine faith, right? Because we all have a measure of faith, but the question we need to concern ourselves with in life is, is my faith genuine? What does that look like? What does it believe? Yes, that's the beginning place, but then when we've believed our theology, then how does that, how does that what does that look like in everyday life, in the full court press of everyday life? Well, it looks like this. Genuine faith is willing to leave everything and follow Christ, some of you have done this. Some of you have done this for ministry. You've come here, you're in seminary, you've left everything behind, and you're following Jesus. Some of you have left family. You've le- you, as Luther said, you've let goods and kindreds go this mortal life also, and you have followed Jesus, and it's cost you family relations. It's cost you friendships. It's been costly. The Christian faith, rightly understood, biblically understood, is costly. And so we read Genesis 12, 1 and 9, God's call to Abraham, and Abraham did what? He obeyed God's call. God calls Abraham to abandon, imagine this, abandon the security of his homeland, of his family, uh, and promises to make him a great nation, to give him a land, to make him a great man, a man through whom blessing will come to millions. And now we read this and think, of course, it's great. And we read it and we think it's great because we have what? We have the story of Abraham. It's like Job. Job didn't have the book of Job. He didn't know he was being tested, right? He would have relaxed a whole lot, I think, if he'd had that book. You know? And I think of Abraham. Abraham didn't know how it was going to turn out. He just said, God, leave everything and follow me. And he did. And he didn't know how it was going to turn out, right? He might, I mean, maybe I mean, am I hearing things? Am I hearing voices? What is it? I don't know how I trust myself, right? I mean, God would have to speak to me. He spoke to to Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old. He had no children. You're going to make me what? You're going to make a great nation out of me? My wife, she's old. She's barren. We'll at Sarah next week. She going to have children. She's an old lady. I'm an old man. Old ladies and old men, they don't have children. Barren wombs, they don't come to life. Of course, unless God says, let there be life, right? And of course, that happens all through the Bible, doesn't it? Our Lord got here not through a barren womb, but through a, a virgin womb. 75 years old. Leave the only home he'd ever known. That's hard. I mean, he didn't get in a car. It's not like today, right? In Ur, I mean, you had to walk everywhere. You go riding camels or horses. I mean, this wasn't like, you know, I'll get in the car. I'm calling you to go to, you know, California. And you get in the car and drive to California. Fly to California. No. This is very, very difficult. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham. He ratifies it by circumcision, as we learn in Genesis 15 and 17. Said, so this is the sign of the covenant. You want the children of the covenant? God chose Abraham. God chose Abraham. Does that bother you? Chose him. Well, yeah, yeah, okay, but he was one of the paragons of faith. He was a good man, yeah. That's why he chose Abraham, right? He was a godly man. He, he worshiped God. He, he probably tithed. He probably taught Sunday school down at Christ Fellowship Baptist Church, you know. Probably went to every event they had, you know. Probably loved, said nice things about the pastor and the other elders, you know. That's the kind of man he was. God knew he had a man he could use. Is that what the text says back in Genesis? No. No. Abraham was saved not because there was something extraordinary about him, but by virtue of God's sovereign choice. God just chosen by his sovereign choice. why did he choose you? Do you know? Can you tell me? Because you're of noble birth? Well, no. Paul takes care of that in 1 Corinthians 1. Right? No. a lot of you, you're from, <laughs> you got some really messed up family trees. Right. Amen to that, right? No. God's sovereign choice. That's why you're here. That's why Abraham was chosen. Abraham was not singled out because of his great faith, because of God, but because of God's grace. We may think he was chosen because he was a good man, but listen to Joshua 24, 2 and 3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. I break our paradigm just a little bit. They served other gods. Are you kidding me? And even worship the one true God exclusively. He's probably like, I had a neighbor one time said, You know, I believe in all the gods just to have all my bases covered. Or sharing the gospel. She said, Oh, I loved your Jesus. He's wonderful. And so is Allah. And so is Buddha. And so are all these. And she said, "I've Literally, I'm going to cover all my bases. So I'll accept your Jesus. Put him right there on the shelf alongside Buddha, you know? That happened the Bible one time. And, <laughs> and it wasn't good for the idol, but. No, that, that, that was kind of what Abraham was. We can laugh, but that's really who we're talking about here. They served other gods. He said, then I took your father Abraham, Joshua does, from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. He's not even a monotheist. He's a polytheist worshiping many gods, right? He's worshiping false gods, and yet God chose him. And I give you some perspective on the fact that God chose you. I wonder about this all the time. I think, why did he choose me? I mean, come on. I look at my background and I look at my qualifications, and they're really slim, frankly. Really slim. And not just a Christian to call to ministry. I mean, there's a lot of people who do this much better than I can. Come on, Lord. But it's all of grace, isn't it? It was all of grace for Abraham. Not because he was a good chap, he was a polytheist. In the same way God chooses us apart from anything virtuous in us. Abraham was saved because God sought him. And God revealed himself to Abraham. And the life of faith in you begins the same way. The life of faith in you begins when God reveals himself to you. He looks at your cold, dead Lying, cheating, cold, dead, beating, two-timing, double-dealing, mean, mistreating, loving heart. I quote a good old country song. He looks at it and says, let there be light. And there's light. That's what God does, right? He did that to him. He revealed himself. He said, I'm going to show myself to you. You're going to come to me, but you're going to come to me after I've revealed myself to you. My grace and my mercy over against the depth of your depravity and sinfulness. So he revealed himself to Abraham, right? He visited Abraham personally. And God visits us personally. He, he reveals himself to us in different ways. We hear the Word of God, right? We may maybe through reading the Bible, think about when you first were enlightened when God began to deal with your heart. You may have heard the testimony of God's grace in the life of another person, or the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, maybe in a hotel room or the Gideon's Bible, maybe in another Christian, maybe been on a bus or a plane or in church. But God said, let there be light. And he drew you to himself with his cords of love, irresistibly and effectually. And people stumble at irresistible grace. I don't know why. Praise God for irresistible grace. I am really stubborn. And so I'm glad he drew me <laughs> in spite of my stubbornness. He overcame that. It wasn't a barrier. I'm not stronger than God. And neither are you. And praise God for that. So God reveals himself to Abraham and he reveals himself to us in the very same way maybe not speaking or you know like Moses through a burning bush sometimes I wish he would right we we're trying to determine God's will so he revealed himself and what did Abraham do well he left everything and followed Jesus right he followed God that's what faith requires that's really the whole lesson here you know you could probably don't stop listening now but I mean if you're gonna you know go take a nap after this but don't, don't do that we got another point to go to go here but he was willing to leave everything and follow Christ. That is the heart of a true Christian. Abraham left his home, his family, his prospects for a good life, and went where God called him. And maybe at first it was easy. You know, maybe he had a, a meddling mother in law. I don't know. It might have been easy. Man, I went out of here, <laughs> right? But you, you know, do want to come back to a while, probably, right? I mean, maybe it was easy, but but I, I don't think it was. The only home he'd ever known, he leaves it. And he lived in tents. Now, some of you, that's very attractive, very appealing. And some of you, you love to camp. Pastor Clay and, and, and David Taylor, my dear brother back there, loves to camp, takes some Boy Scouts. But I've got to be honest with you, I fail to see the merits of camping. I've just never been into that. You know, I mean, I, the last time I went camping was June of 1994, and it was so bad, I remember that, you know, for me. I voluntarily slept out on the ground in in Fort Payne, Alabama. It was a thousand degrees, and I was you know, regretting the day I was born and lots of other things. I was spoiled, right? So he had to live in tents. Of course, there's always invari- inevitably there's the bathroom issue, you know, and <laughs> you're kind of a germaphobe like I am about things like that. That's 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 a challenge, you know. So he had to live in tents. For me, that's hard. For some of you, that's delightful, right? But for me hard I just never quite got that now someone's gonna take me on a camping trip and that'd be good that's fine you can David if you can you can help me David's David's uh, agreeing to that I think he he'd be the man who might give me a passion but I doubt it 1994 that's a long time we have we have heat and air conditioning right where at night you can have that so anyway but he lived in tents he roughed it it was it was hard right God called him away from the good life And so it is with every one of us who would be saved. Whether you want to live in a tent or don't want to live in a tent, whatever, it's still God's calling us to himself, right? To leave everything, the comforts of our air conditioning, which I probably like too much, and our heat and all those things. He's calling us away from those things to himself, to follow him no matter what. And Abraham goes. A.W. Pink said, "...the evidence of regeneration is found in a genuine conversion." And he defines it this way, he says, it is the complete break from the old life, both inner and outer, which furnishes proof of the new birth. You're gonna look different, you're gonna be different, you're gonna believe it's gonna be you're gonna be made new. And you're gonna go and follow Jesus, and you're gonna live in tents, and yes, you're gonna camp every night if that's what it requires, right? And God may yet require that of me, and if he does, I hope I'm gonna, I've got some good brothers here who are gonna help me endure that. I have no doubt. So God gives us faith and genuine faith is one to leave everything and all Christ. Our second main point. And again, we're going to have several things under this point. Genuine faith sees the invisible with greater clarity than the visible. Am I confused or crazy? Greater clarity than the visible. Well, we learn here verse 10, he was seeking a city. His builder and maker was God, right? A builder and founder is God. And, and, And it's a city he couldn't see. I see Louisville, right? I can see this city. But really and truly, I am called and you are called to seek ultimately a city we cannot see. Through a Savior and a God, we cannot see. So our faith is entirely in invisible things. And this is why it requires a work of grace in our hearts before we see it. When Jesus, Nicodemus appeared to Jesus and Jesus said, you must be born again, but if you would see the kingdom of God, I take seeing there as a synonym for faith. Seeing is believing, right? Seeing is God saying, you believe, you have faith and you believe, and God gives it. And we're able to see with greater greater clarity the kingdom that will come. We're able to see it more, more vividly than the kingdom of man. Of course, always think of Augustine here and the the city of of God, his famous book. Rome was sacked by the Visigoths in in 410 A.D., left the Romans in a a deep, deep state of shock. They couldn't believe they'd been sacked by these, such a a, a, a hillbilly kind of people, (laughs) such a, a lowly kind of people, an unsophisticated kind of people. And they saw it as punishment for abandoning the traditional Roman religion, the polytheism, for Christianity. They blamed Christians. So this is Christians' fault. Of course, Augustine said, no, it couldn't be Christians' fault because we're we're the best citizens you'll ever have because we live for the city of man, yes, but ultimately for the city of God. And that that transforms how we love. We love God. We love our neighbor. It transforms the way we love it. It, it, it sanctifies our love. Our affections change. And so we love something that is invisible more than we love that which we can see with our own two eyes. And see, that's the city, and this is where Augustine got uh, his idea for this book, to the, written to the Emperor of Rome, saying we could not because we're we're looking for another city. A, a city again describes here as whose foundation, whose designer and builder is God. It's the city of God ultimately. That is where your citizenship lies. You don't like the election or you don't like the way our country is going or another country is going? Well, just wait because your ultimate home is another country. Yes, I'm glad and thankful to be an American and, and thankful for the, the sacrifices our soldiers have made through the years. Very thankful. I'm very, very much a patriot, but I realize I am not most fundamentally an American. I am most fundamentally a Christian. And my most fundamental home is not America or Georgia or Kentucky or whatever. It is in Christ and the kingdom that will come and will crush all the pretenses of the kingdom of man, the city of man. So we're looking for a city just like Abraham was. Is that the drift and the tenor of your life? Do you believe more in the things you can't see more more intensely than the things you do see? That's what we have to ask ourselves. Because the two cities, Augustine wrote about, and I think we see here, are peoples marked out by standards of living, right? And loves, standard of flesh versus the standard of the Spirit, and things like that. So we live ultimately for an invisible city, the city of God whose designer and builder is God himself, and that city will come. Now within this mark, I see six more, all of them related to this. They flow out of this. Here's the first one. So genuine faith sees the invisible with greater clarity than the visible. And since that's true, therefore, you can insert a therefore here, if you wanted to do that in your notes. Since that's true, one, genuine faith trusts in God's sovereignty. God called Abraham out of Ur and said, go to a place I will show you. You think he didn't trust in God's absolute sovereignty? He had no choice if he was going to go, right? Because he didn't know where he was going. If we don't know where we're going, we're in big trouble. That's true of some of us, isn't it? <laughs> but he, and he didn't know where he was going, but he had God as his sovereign king and his sovereign trail guide, and God would take him there. And God would fulfill these promises. He knew God was absolutely sovereign, and no matter how unlikely the circumstances were from a human standpoint, he trusted and rested in his sovereignty. Are you doing that? The sovereignty of God is both after the cross of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty and providence of God are doctrines that give me the greatest comfort of anything I've ever heard in my years on this earth. I take so much solace in that. That's always my shelter. In fact, after we here in a few months, we hope to maybe preach through the book of Esther, and we're going to see the providence of God. That's what it's about, the providence of God, because God's not mentioned in that book, right? We see the providence of God in her story. We see the sovereignty of God in her story. And you, if you look closely, and you don't have to look all that closely, probably, you see the sovereignty of God on every single second of your story. God is writing the story. You're the actor in your story, but God is writing your story, isn't it? Isn't He? And, and, and we know the outcome. We know the ending, don't we? We see it in Scripture. And so genuine faith trusts, uh, and I'll, I'll add a word I used last week unflinchingly in God's sovereignty. Are you going through a hard time? Maybe you've had a breakup in your relationship, or maybe you've got someone's had a, a diagnosis for cancer, or you have a diagnosis, and it's hard, and you weep, and you hurt, and of course you hurt, but you rest in God's sovereignty, knowing that this is not outside His will. Some, in some mysterious way, yes, we're man is responsible 100%, but God is also 100% sovereign. And, and Abraham rested in that, and he went. And it will cause you to go when you don't understand anything but God's sovereignty. I'm still in the ministry because of God, so I trusted God that I was called to ministry. After a really rough time in ministry a few years ago, I wanted to quit, but I knew I can't quit. I'm called, and I've got to go, and that's it. I didn't know where I was going to go. Turned out to be Louisville. Turned out to be here. Praise God for that. And I only see that in retrospect. People are always asking me as a pastor. And I know our pastors get asked this all the time: "What's God's will for my life?" And so I don't know. <laughs> it's being saved, being sanctified, and then doing you know following doing what you want out of a sanctified heart. Within reason, of course, he's not calling you to sin. So genuine faith trusts in God's sovereignty, rests in God's sovereignty. Second, genuine faith trusts God's word, even when, or perhaps especially when, it cuts against conventional wisdom. Sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are irreconcilable truths from the human to the human mind, and that causes many to to pause and to reject Christianity because of the so-called problem of evil. But we trust God's Word because it usually does cut across the grain of human wisdom, doesn't it? It cuts against the grain. There's all these paradoxes. It's like Jesus died and rose again to save us so we might have a life, things like that. Through His death comes our life. It's all these paradoxes, right? It doesn't make sense from a worldly perspective. All Abraham had was God's word. He said, go and I will do this. I'll make you a great people. I'll give you a land. It'll be all your own. You're going to be a great nation. And he believed him. He trusted God. Just like Noah, it's going to rain a lot for 40 days and 40 nights. It's going to rain 120 years, build a big boat. He trusted. He built the boat and the flood came. Thirdly, genuine faith understands and submits to the truth that God calls us to do whatever his gifts and providence have set before us and does it. Whatever you're doing, whatever your vocation is, that is your calling. You don't need to necessarily leave that and go be a pastor because you need to be a Christian maybe as a plumber or a builder or a school teacher or a butcher, or a baker, or a candlestick maker, whatever it is, He made you. God made you for His glory in that position. And so you understand God calls it you to do whatever his gifts and his providence have set before us. This is what Abraham did, right? He, he raised him up and said, you're going to go, you're able to go, you can walk or you can ride a camel or whatever you do, you can go and you can do this and I, I have raised you up for such a time as this. For me, it was ministry after several years in journalism. God wasn't confused, it was just in his timing, Right? For some of you, it's the call to ministry. Some of you are about to graduate high school or about to graduate college, and you don't know what you're going to do. And God's going to suit you. He's going to fit you. He's going to call you to do what He's given you the ability to do, and He's going to give you a love for it. I tell my kids this all the time. What should I do? Well, what are you good at? What, are, what do you feel like God's calling you to do? What's He fitting you to do? When well, we understand, genuine faith understands, I'm going to rest in that. Even if it's something, you know you'll enjoy it, but you won't always enjoy it. I didn't always love being a journalist. I had to cover NASCAR races. That wasn't enjoyable at all. (laughs) That was punishment. (laughs) To me, it was anyway, right? I felt like I was being, I felt like it was demerits or something to me, but I did it. And ministry. ministry's not easy all the time. It's not easy most of the time. If you're doing it right, I think, not because you're a troublemaker, but because you're a sinful pastor dealing with sinful people, right? And that's always hard in a good way. But that's what we're called to do. That's it, and I, we rest in that. Fourthly, genuine faith always leads to obedience, even if we don't know where we're going, because there's an already not yet drift to salvation into our lives. Right? We're already saved, and we're being saved, and God is—he's still writing. He's written your story before the foundation of the world in His decrees. But you, though you are blind to His decrees, you don't have that right. You don't have that information. Wouldn't you like to have the book of your life if there was one of those up there, like the book of Jeff? You know, to get that and go, man, I want to see how this ends. You, know, you find out you're going to die tomorrow, and you put the book in. The All right, don't want to know that, you know. But we love, we crave omniscience, don't we? We want to know, but we don't know. But we obey, we trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Because our, our faith, our lives are already not yet. And so the Christian life is one of living for that other city. First Peter, we looked at uh, months, a uh, couple years ago, First Peter 1, he calls us strangers and aliens, that means that this world is not our home, and therefore we are to seek contentment in the things we do not see. I mean, what else could have possibly motivated Abraham? He, was had, he had to be content in God and then content in things he could not see. Jeremiah Burroughs, and by the way, in our small group we're looking at a book on contentment these next few weeks, and I'm excited because we all lack contentment. I, I would argue that's the key to Christian maturity. This is what I think made Abraham able to go. He was content that God and His Word were enough. Jeremiah Burroughs, in the rare jewel of Christian contentment, wrote this great book, and the book we're studying is based on in part on this book. He said, The Scripture plainly teaches us that we must behave ourselves here as pilgrims and strangers. Consider what your condition is. You are pilgrims and strangers, so do not think to satisfy yourself here. So let us not be troubled. When we see that other men have great wealth, but we have not. Why? We are going away to another country. You are, as it were, only lodging here for a night. If you were to live a hundred years in comparison to eternity, it is not as much as a night. It is as though you were traveling and had come to an inn. I always think of the Lord of the, inn, the, Lord of the Rings and they come to the Prancing Pony. They've come to the, You've come to the Prancing Pony. And if you don't know what that is, go read Tolkien. You'll learn. It'll be glorious, and you'll love it. If you don't, come and see me, and we'll talk. That's this world. You've come to the end, right? And this is where you were staying just overnight. And that causes you to live in a much different way. Jeremiah Burroughs is a Puritan pastor, lived 1599 to 1646. I commend that work to you because it writes about being content, very clear. Uh, One of the best Puritan writers, in my opinion, one of the best works. But we've come to an end. And the Christian life is the hard road. It's the narrow way. Jesus said it. Hard is the path, and hard is the way. Narrow the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Hard and narrow. Those are dirty words in our culture. Aren't they? Oh, the hard way? Well, I'm not going to do that. I like comfort. We all like comfort. And narrow, we like broadness. Within the context of <laughs> certain political constructions, we, like broad. we really don't like broadness, do we? Let's just be honest. I don't like broadness. Ah, the word of God is very narrow and I like that narrow. I like that narrow path. That's it, right? And the other side, they don't like broadness either. But that's another sermon for another time. It's a hard road. We don't know what lies on the path between this world and your true home. On our way to that city, we don't know what's gonna happen, do We, we don't know. We're not omniscient. We don't know what lies on the road ahead. Our path to the eternal city is a minefield of dangers and toils and snares. And, of course, I think here of John Bunyan, The Pilgrim's Progress, and why I want you to read it and why I commend it all the time because the Christian left his home just like Abraham. It's almost a parallel to Abraham in many ways. He left his home. He started out on the way to the eternal city, fleeing from the city of destruction. Along the way, he encountered one hardship after another. It's a hard path. At one point, he wandered off the path and got lost, and we've been there. I've been there. There was a point in my life where I was wandering far from the fold of God. If you would have said I was going to be a pastor someday, the whole community would still be laughing right now, and I would have too. And Bunyan, or, or Christian, was tempted by men like Simple and Slothful and Presumption. He was... Worn out by climbing the hill difficulty and turned off the path by fearing the roaring lions. All those things. But he came to a place where he could see the delectable mountains, the beautiful mountains. He could see the celestial cities from there, the ultimate destination. He could see it. It was in sight. Beloved, that's where you are. You can look in God's word and you can see it. The world doesn't see this. And the world's full of despair without little, very, very little hope. There's a hopelessness that pervades our society, isn't there? And this gives us a perfect, wonderful opportunity for evangelism, by the way, because we have this sure and settled of hope. We're, we're like Christian at the Delectable Mountains. We can see over into the celestial city. We can see it. We can see it through His Word. Do you see it? Has God given you the eyes to see it, beloved? Or you just see this world and all the trouble surrounding you? Are you troubling your own trouble? Are you defined by your problems? Sometimes as Christians, we get so bogged down, don't we? We're defined by our problems, I think. That vision of the city of heaven, a city whose foundations and designer builders, God, that did a lot to encourage Christian forward along a, through a long journey of trials, and so should it you, when you are suffering, just take one look, just glance over into heaven. Read the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation uh, to 21, 2021. Read those chapters, and they're it's a glorious vision of your inheritance, of what will come. Hospitals will not always be here. COVID, it's going to go away, hopefully by April, (laughs) right? (laughs) Death, funeral homes, they're going to close down because you're going to a city whose builder and designer, builder is God. But of course, you live with your heart, don't you? And your heart is... Bipolar. Your heart always sees contentment as just out of reach. It's always in the other, on the other guy, in the other guy's story, isn't it? It's always the grass is always greener for us, isn't it? So our hearts are very bipolar. We're we're always looking. I'll be content if only live this if only lifestyle. If I only had this, if only, if only, if only, then I'd be content. You will be tempted to this desire. to uh, to, to desire this city more than the city you do not see. To desire the city you do see far more than the city you do see. It's tempting, isn't it? I mean, verse 9 tells us, Abraham lives in a tent. Verse 16, later on in the chapter, tells us the location of the city. Uh, Abraham ultimately saw it. He sa- it says, But as it is, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. God's prepared it. He is our God. We have this promise. In one sense, it's, it's... It's, we say this all the time. It's possible to be so heavenly minded, we're no, no earthly good. Christians get, you know, we get accused of this fairly often. And that's not always a good thing, but I think, it, in a sense, it is a good thing. In a sense. In a deeper sense. I mean, it's impossible to be of any real earthly good unless we are heavenly minded. You're not going to be any good to your family, to your friends, unless you're, you're focused on that city that has come unless that's your treasure and your portion forever, unless that is your greatest heart's desire, you'll be of no good to anyone on this earth. Only the heavenly minded will have the patience to continue faithful in God's work. And in walking with God, when it becomes hard or you're underappreciated or the path seems unending, you just get tired. Are you tired? Well, I'm, we're all tired, Right? but there's no greater cure for disappointment and you're going to have it in life if you're not teaching your kids there's going to be disappointment in life you're not teaching your kids how to live in this real world they're going to be disappointed they're going to get everything they want I may not get much of what they want but there's disappointment and if we're looking to this city only then we're going to live a disappointed life a very sad and angry and likely very bitter deeply bitter life you feel underappreciated right Or maybe you've got fatigue or full of self-pity. You just don't understand how mean my husband is or my wife is or my mother-in-law or father-in-law. You don't understand my life. Well, think about this. I would counter that with this. The same way I counter my own discontentment with this. God has chosen you just like Abraham. God has called you just like Abraham. And get this. God has adopted you into his family. Your family is dysfunctional, well, join the crowd, right? But God has adopted you into his family. There's no dysfunction in that family, not ultimately. He's called you, he's chosen you, he's chosen you, called you, adopted you. And because of that, you will spend eternity with him in a place, no more sin, no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more discontentment, no more bipolar heart that sees the grass as greener and always just barely out of reach. When it's, we concentrate on the things below, we live and die with every little thing that goes wrong or seems to last too long or is not successful or appreciated. We're very peevish because every hill is a hill on which to die, right? Every time we're insulted, well, we're going to go to war because you insulted Almighty Me. We live in a claustrophobic, as Paul Tripp calls it, this claustrophobic little kingdom of one where you're the king or you're the queen. Of your own life. You're the uh, captain of your own soul, and every offense is something that sends you to war with other people, right? Because it's your kingdom. There's no, there is nothing else. I don't feel appreciated. Do I want to go to war with you? You see how this works? That's why Paul tells us to set our mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth, in Colossians 3.2. When our minds are on Christ and on eternity with Him, we will be set free from anxiety to be patient with what happens down here. If we look continually to the things of this world, to its trials, its troubles, and the struggles on one hand, or its money, its fame, its pleasure on the other, then we cannot help becoming self-absorbed. It's all about me. Or the impatient desires of the flesh will take over. They will rule your heart, and they will rule your mind, and you will be insufferable to those around you. Are you that way this morning? Is that you? Surely no one in this church is like that. We're entirely sanctified here, right? We love the Bible. We're reformed, for goodness' sake. Does that describe any of you? Well, I haven't been that way in the last thirty or forty minutes, right? But before that, I make no promises. If we focus on Christ and our standing with Him and all that means for us eternally, then we won't care so much about what goes on here. We won't. We'll be able to live in this way. Paul encouraged Timothy Said, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier is active in active service and tangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. I mean, the Christian life is a battlefield, and you need God's grace daily to give you a gritty, enduring faith, and that's what we're after here in this church, a gritty, enduring faith by grace alone. That will come by grace alone. Fifthly, genuine faith perseveres in the face of suffering in this world. Paul said, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Romans 8, 18, and in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, he says this, and no, no minister in the history of the Christian church has ever suffered to the extent Paul did, probably. Shipwrecked, beaten, left for dead, stoned, and by that he means rocks thrown at him, not the other stuff, you know. it's Paul suffered greatly, and he said this, so we do not lose heart. No doubt someone here this morning, you're, you're, you're tempted to lose heart and say, this whole Christian project thing, is just not working. Listen to Paul. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, yes, we're dying. The fall is true of us. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then he says this. Remember, shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead, and hunger, and thirst, uh, all these things he, he describes in 2 Corinthians 11, his, what I call his ministry resume. He says this. For this momentary light affliction, do you hear what he called it? Momentary light affliction. Are any of you going to sleep outside tonight? I don't mean purposely because you love camping. (laughs) Are you going to to be forced to sleep outside tonight? Paul said, for this momentary light affliction. You're probably not. Okay, I didn't want an answer to that. (laughs) But you're probably not. This momentary light affliction is producing us a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Why? He said because we look to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are unseen are eternal and we don't look to the things that are seen because those things are passing away. They're temporal. And he can look at that because of this eternal perspective in Christ. He can say it's momentary line of affliction. You're probably going through something right now and you think it's the worst day you've ever had or the worst time you've ever had, and maybe it is on this earth, but can you look at it in light of eternity, in light of your, the kingdom will come and say, it's momentary light affliction, and it's going to produce in me a weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God's going to make it, use it to make you and form you and fashion you like his son and cut away all the dross, all the the garbage that has held you back in this fallen world, and he will fit you for the kingdom to come and make you perfect. Finally, genuine faith sees Christ as enough. Abraham did. Is Christ your treasure in the field? Is he your pearl of great price? Is he enough for you? If you never get wealthy in this world, if no one ever knows you in this world, if you go and pastor a church with 50 or 60 people in an obscure town, in an obscure state, all the way in the corner, and you never get a publishing contract, and you don't write for the Gospel Coalition or Southern Equip or any of these things, and no one ever knows you, but you faithfully preached to those people love loved them for 30, 40, 50 years. And I know lots of men that describes. Is that enough for you? It was enough for them. Is it enough for you? It, Christ was enough for Abraham. We know that because he went. Now, did he have some trouble after he went out? You better believe it. We're going to see that. Boy, he had some big trouble, right? He did some really stupid and sinful things. And so have you. And so have I. Momentary line of affliction. Genuine faith sees Christ as enough. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he This is how Abraham lived by faith for long years in a land not his own. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. If we're looking to persevere in the Christian life, beloved, then we must too fix our eyes on that city. That is our destination. That is our true home. Though we do not know what lies between it and us we're going to walk through this veil of tears that is this world, then like Abraham Christ is going to have to be enough for us we've got to be like Peter and I close with this, and I love this because God's going to call you to leave something, even it's just this world behind to follow him, right for those of us in ministry, I mean I I had to leave, I left a career in journalism I left a a home state I dearly love because I talk about it all the time I left all that, you know and what does God think about that? Am I, can I say, well, boy, look what I've left. Well, Peter did. You've got to love Peter. He always says what we think, right? And we're glad he did because God wrote that down. And I close with this. He say, but I've left a lot. Listen to this. Mark 10, 20 to 30. This is in Matthew and Luke 2. But Peter began to say to him, see, he's talking to Jesus here. This is rich. See? We have left everything and followed you. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, Jesus, I still will follow. He says that. And here's what our Lord said. Very patiently, by the way. Just hear the pastor here, right in the Lord. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake. And for the gospel, for my sake and for the gospel, you left home to go in ministry? Yeah, you left for the gospel's sake. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land. you hear the echo of Abraham in here? With persecutions, ah, and in the age to come, eternal life friends this just shows as abraham's life shows that you cannot outgive god he gave it all in calvary you can't outgive him so that you might have life in his city to come let's pray together father i pray that we would let go of this world And we would cling to Christ because we know He's clinging to us. And I pray, Lord, that every one of us here would approach life in this world with an eternal perspective, knowing that this is not our final home, that this is just the end. We've just been called to stay here overnight. And one day we will be called into your presence for all these things, this great inheritance Mark 10 speaks of, and the whole New Testament speaks of, which the Old Testament points to will be ours in Christ Jesus because of what He did at Calvary, because He went out of this world and came back into this world in His death and in His resurrection. We might have life and have it to the full. Give us grace now to seek that city whose designer, whose builder is God for Your glory and let goods and kindred go this mortal life also and live for Your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.